Thank you, everyone, for your uh, patience and for your prayers. And for kids, I know this was maybe a little scary, a little strange. For adults, even, a little scary and a little strange. Obviously, unusual here for our church. But I want to encourage you, too. This is like the safest possible place, kids, that you could be in a moment like this. Surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ at church where the Holy Spirit is here at work in and amongst us where we're gathered to worship and to be reminded of his power over all earthly forces, all spiritual forces. And what a great uh, reminder, great confidence that we have in our great and mighty God here this morning. And as we study our passage, we're going to get into Ephesians, we're going to be reminded again of the unstoppable, uh, all-surpassing, overwhelming, immeasurable greatness of God's power that is available to us as believers and is part of our inheritance and his gift to us. And this is part of Paul's prayer that we're going to study this morning. His prayer is that we would know God's great power ourselves and experience it in our daily lives, even in moments like this, comforted by his presence and reassured of his power to bring change. As we continue here in our sermon this morning, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We were in Ephesians before Christmas. We're, We're restarting that series here again, looking at verse 15, and we hear this this morning of Paul's prayer for his people, his prayer for the Ephesians, not only that they would grow and mature in the ways that we're hoping and praying that you would be growing and maturing in your faith over this coming year, but also that they would come to know and experience God ever more deeply and profoundly as well, that their hearts would be open, that the Holy Spirit would reveal to them at a deeper level the abundant blessings that they have in Christ. All the blessings, if you can cast your mind back to November when we were looking at the first section in Ephesians chapter 1, all the blessings Paul lists, they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They've been chosen predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. They've received the riches of grace poured out upon them in abundance. And they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their inheritance. And having listed all those profound blessings in lives of the people, Paul now moves to a prayer and he prays that the Ephesians would be able to now internalize these blessings, to own them, to bury them deep into their hearts, to live in light of them. And that's, that's my hope and desire. I think it's, it's all our, as pastors, our hope and desire is exactly the same, that you also would know and experience God more intimately this year through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and amongst you to truly see and understand and live in the deep truths that we read about in verses 3 through 14, that you would shape your identity, how you see yourself, and control your outlook throughout this whole year. In short, I pray with Paul that this year the Holy Spirit would help you to know 
the power of God in a deeper, richer, and more profound way than ever before. And now my, as we move into the text, my first point this morning is simply as to lean into community. So if you look with me at the text, Paul says in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, Paul clearly loved the people of Ephesus. Even though it had been some time since he had been there in person, he continued to both think of them and pray for them regularly. More specifically, not just praying for them in all kinds of ways, but as Paul makes clear here in the text, giving thanks to God for them as well. Now, why does he give thanks to God? Look at verse 15. Because Paul had heard of both their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for each other. Now, obviously, he already knew of the faith of those he had ministered to when he was working, planting churches in Ephesus. His labor there had been fruitful. He had seen many people come to faith in Christ. But faith is more than just a mere one-time come-to-Jesus moment, right? Faith in Jesus is a lifelong activity, a long-term, ongoing commitment to wake up every single day and to resolve to live for someone else, to die to self, to say, thy will be done, Lord, not mine. I think of an airplane pilot who goes to work every single day, trusting completely and fully in the engineering and the mechanical processes that will keep the plane in the air. That's what a life of faith involves, trusting in Jesus for everything for wisdom in life choices, for insight in relationships, for financial and material provision, for understanding difficult or confusing topics at school or work, for strengthening and sustaining it through awkward and uncomfortable and unexpected situations whenever they arise. Right? And God graciously works through our failures and our mistakes, but a but as we trust in him and we pray and we ask God for help, he will lead us. I know it sounds so simple, so basic, so almost insignificant, and yet pausing each morning before you start your day long enough to ask for that help makes such a difference. Maybe not in that immediate moment. You may not experience it, but imagine a full month of living that way, waking up every single morning saying, Lord, your will be done. Help me to trust you today. A month, six months, a year, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Small changes accumulate to bring about massive change over a period of time. And that's the Ephesians filled with faith for Jesus. But look also with me at the example here of Paul. You know, unfortunately, I think the, the glorious commands of Scripture can often come across as a, uh, or be portrayed as a, a spiritualized version of kind of do more, try harder. And as a result, the process of spiritual growth can sometimes feel like a dull, monotonous trudge through an endless, boring landscape with no end in sight, Right? You need to trust more, you need to hope more, you need to give more, you need to love more, and on and on and on. How much more? I don't know, just more, just constantly more. But look at Paul. He doesn't open 
this letter by commanding the Ephesians to have more faith. You need to have more faith. He opens his letter by commending the Ephesians for the faith that they have. Imperfect? For sure. But a gift from God and something they're working to exercise nonetheless. And he praises God and he gives thanks for what they are already doing. He calls out their current successes. Now, how often do we do that in our churches or our homes? Right? Recognizing and commending the faith that we already see in others. Celebrating the little victories and the small displays of faith. Instead of constantly pressing for more. How might we, God might want us to shift our focus, right? To give thanks for what we already see in those around us. Maybe over this next week, take time in your families, in your homes to to give thanks, to identify areas where you see that faith at work, in your spouse, in your kids, in your friends, in your siblings. And you identify it and you give thanks for it, Right? I think of these, uh, I brought these with today. If you any of you had fire over Christmas, it's like, like fanning that flame, right? Pumping air into that. Fanning into flame even the smallest sparks of faith that you see. That's what Paul is doing here in his prayer. Constantly giving thanks for the faith that he sees demonstrated in the Ephesians. But what does, he, what does that faith look like? How does Paul know that they trust Jesus, that they're displaying such faith? One obvious way he talks about is their deep love toward all the saints, as he says in verse 15. Now, there are many different ways that we can display faith, but a clear love for other people is a significant one. You know, my, uh, my sister-in-law was visiting here from South Carolina over Christmas, and she came to our Christmas Eve service over at Faith Baptist, a combined service. And it was this amazing moment for her, and she was teary-eyed afterwards, just shocked at the depths of fellowship that she experienced here, the warmth of welcome that she received. And she was like, where's the mad rush for the exits the moment the service is done? That, that's the norm for her and the churches that she's been a part of. Service is over, everyone bolts for the exits. She was like, people didn't even get up out of their seats. They just turned around and started talking with those around them. It's amazing. And I think that's the kind of thing Paul personally experienced in Ephesus, right? And then continued to hear about long after he left. And and this fits with what Jesus told the disciples, right? By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And I am so proud, and I speak for all the pastors here, so proud to serve in a church that actually lives this out, right? And so I just want to encourage you, lean into this. May this continue to be a defining characteristic of who we are as a church, especially as we move into this potential new location. 
I pray that our love for each other would be evident to the people living near Faith Baptist, up on Parkway Drive and in the neighborhoods all around there, that anyone walking into our door would see a community of broken people empowered by the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ to serve and care for those around them. That they would see husbands and wives looking for ways to show love for one another, even in the midst of their imperfect marriages. Right, that they would see brothers and sisters in Christ patiently forgiving each other when wronged or hurt and looking for ways to be reconciled. That they would see practical and financial needs met, not by some big program or ministry, but by other families in the church stepping out, stepping forward to offer support, encouragement, and help when people need it the most. And on and on and on and on. I praise God, I give thanks to God constantly that this is already happening here at our church. And I just pray that we continue to see this kind of community, that we continue to be this kind of community as God grows and expands our presence over this coming year. And my second point today from the text is, is I pray that we should pray for the Spirit to help us know God more intimately. You know, my wife's aunt has been living a, a, a retirement home for many years now. She has significant osteoarthritis and constant pain that doesn't seem to go away. She rarely gets out of the building. But for all of the, the ravages that age and time have taken away from her, prayer remains one of the most vibrant and life-giving aspects of her life. Honestly, I consider my own conversion to Christ a result of her many prayers from when Kari was a little girl praying constantly for the man that she would marry. And then even after she found out that Kari was sort of interested in this guy who was not a Christian, praying fervently for my conversion. And I'm convinced that, that her prayers are part of the reason that I am here today as a Christian, saved, redeemed. And over the years, her prayers have strengthened so many other people and changed the world in ways that I will probably never know fully until I get to heaven. She's not a perfect woman, but she is a prayerful woman. And whenever I spend time with her, I am convicted that I need to be praying so much more and perhaps some of you have known someone like this in your life. And I found myself thinking of her again and again this week as I read Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. As you look with me again at verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, if you've read any of the New Testament before, you know that Paul was a man of prayer, constantly praying for those around him. And if we're to follow his model, we too should be people of prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer, silent prayer, spoken prayer, written out prayers, uh, liturgical prayers, ancient prayers from the church fathers, prayers taken from the Psalms, whatever it is. 
Look, God is sovereign absolutely over all things, but he has determined that prayer is one of the primary means by which he accomplishes his purposes here on earth. Through our prayers, faltering, imperfect, fumbling, stumbling, whatever they sound or look like, God has decreed, I wouldn't do it this way, but God has decided he is going to work through our prayers to accomplish his purposes, and he calls us to pray. Which is why we make corporate prayer a regular part of our Sunday morning service. And we're going to run late this morning, and we're going to pray anyway together because it is so important. It's why we have a prayer group that meets every Friday morning via Zoom. It's why Kathy Reamer just started a a new prayer group where we're going to pray for our children every other Thursday. But with so many potential needs before him, in this case right here, what does Paul pray for specifically? And according to verse 17, Paul's primary prayer is for the Ephesians to grow closer to God. This is so cool here. If you look at the text, because this whole verse is structured in a way that highlights the Trinity working together in and through all of this. Paul talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory and the Spirit. So first, Paul affirms again that Jesus is the Christ, the Greek word for Messiah. More than that, though, Jesus is also Lord, a word frequently used to determine uh, to define his divinity. Second, Paul addresses his prayer directly to the Father of glory. In some translations it says the glorious Father. And the point is simply that God is both the source of all glory and reflects glory. His character, his essence, his being is so perfect, so magnificent that he radiates Glory, majesty, magnificence. And then third, Paul asks for God to give the Ephesians the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, as believers, they already possess the Holy Spirit, okay? They haven't lost that, and now they need to get it again. They've been sealed, secure, right? But Paul seems to be teaching here that God will answer this prayer through the work of of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They don't need more spirit. They need the spirit to move more in their lives. That's what he's praying for. And so for the second time in just one chapter, in just sort of 20 verses, 19, 20 verses, Paul's already referenced the Trinity twice. It's amazing. But what does Paul want the spirit to do in their lives? He prays for the Spirit to bring wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, wisdom, of course, is rooted in a fear of the Lord. But it involves a special perception into the way way God is at work in the world. Now, sometimes you'll hear people talk about wisdom as applied knowledge. It's it's like a God-given understanding that guides and directs us and helps us to, to live in a manner which is holy and pleasing to God. And Revelation then is similar, but refers to more like an unveiling or, or a revealing of something that was other be, otherwise be unknown to us, something revealed to us specifically by God. It's a spiritual term. We're not talking about scientific discovery, but theological 
understanding, something that can only be revealed to us by God. And this wisdom and and revelation is meant to do one thing. Together, they're intended to help us grow in our knowledge of God. Now, merely head knowledge, of course that's part of it. You can't really know God if you don't know things about him. But Paul's prayer is for the Spirit to bring about this deep, intimate, personal, ongoing, vital, loving, living, breathing, relational knowledge of God. Something they would experience down deep in their bones. You know, every week we, uh, we come here to church and we hear of God's great blessings. Right? And what our status is as God's children. But Paul prays that the Ephesians would internalize these great truths. That, that they would take them into their hearts, embrace them, and live by them. That the head knowledge would become heart knowledge. That the concepts would become identity-defining truths. That the blessings listed in the beginning of this chapter would define them and control them and direct them and to lead them and encourage them and help them and strengthen them. It's the difference between, between reading a book and understanding a book. Right? Between maybe kids, it's the difference between under, knowing what a s'more is and then actually savoring and enjoying the chocolatey, gooey, marshmallowy mess for yourself, like really tasting it. That's what Paul wants, for them to really experience God personally for themselves, not just to know about him, but to experience him. If you'll permit me one last little illustration before we move to the next section. We just got done with Christmas, right? In fact, our tree, I don't know about you, our tree is still fully intact, fully decorated, fully lit, In the living room still. I don't want to take it down. I want to live in that moment a little longer. But think back to Christmas Day. The presents, they have your name on them. Right? You possess them. They belong to you. But how crazy would it be, kids, to never open those gifts? Like, on Christmas Day, you just, oh, thank you so much. This is wonderful. And you you take that big pile of unopened gifts up to your room. You put them in a corner. You keep them there, you dust them off occasionally, you, you, you adjust the bows so they still look pretty and, and, the, and the ends still curl up. You take photos of the, your pile of presents, you show people those photos. You talk to other people about them, but you never actually open the gift. You, you never get out the Lego set and start building with it. You never take out the doll and start playing with it. It'd be crazy, right? And yet, how often do we fall into this trap when we consider the astonishing gifts God's given us in Christ? How often do they just languish in a corner, untouched, unrealized, while we go about our day-to-day lives, essentially living as if nothing had ever really happened? And Paul's prayer is a model to help guide us as we seek to know and experience God more intimately. Such knowledge, he says, is not something you can just drum up under your own strength. Like, hey, Jonathan, go open those presents. You need to open your presents. Paul says this is something that requires the Holy Spirit's help 
And so he prays. He says, tell the Ephesians, you need to work harder at enjoying these gifts from God. He says, I'm praying for you that the Spirit would work in your hearts to help you understand and grasp how amazing these gifts from God are. And so that's what we're praying for you. That's what I want you to pray for me. That's what we need to be praying for each other, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we might fully grasp how amazing these gifts are that God's given to us and truly live in and experience the presence of God as a result. But as good as all of that sounds, I know it's still just a little bit vague and ephemeral. And I think Paul may have sensed that also. So he clarifies, expands on this prayer a little in verses 18 and 19, which leads to my third point today, which is enter this year with confidence in God's love, in his calling, his love, and his power. Look with me again here at the text, and, and I'm using the CSB, the translation here, because it's just a little bit clearer, breaking up the prayer into shorter sentences. And he says, I pray, this is Paul praying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. You can probably see this already, but there are three component pieces of this knowledge of God. He wants the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of their hearts so they might grasp three things. The hope of his calling, the wealth of his glorious inheritance, and as we talked about already this morning, the immeasurable greatness of his power. So we'll look at all three of these And then we'll be done. First, the hope of his calling. You know, the concept of calling is closely tied with the fact that God has chosen us and predestined us for adoption. Our Heavenly Father issues an irresistible call to those whom he has chosen. A call that cannot be thwarted or avoided or resisted. And the effectiveness of this call is what produces hope. If God has called you, then you have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. As Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. If you've been called, then you're now part of the royal family of God. Adopted as sons and daughters of the king. You're not left wishing that one day that might happen. It's a concrete historical fact that has already been established in the past. Now my hope may be that the Bears play better this year. Or maybe that's more of a pipe dream at this point. I don't know. But my hope in God's calling, it's definite. It is sure. It is certain bought by the blood of Christ, secured through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that hope, it is a feeling, but it is based on facts, historical facts. We talked about these in our uh, Sunday school class this morning as Brendan was teaching on the 
the truth and the, the power and the reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a historical fact which secures our hope. You belong to Christ and he will never let you go. That is the hope that comes from God's calling. Now secondly, Paul prays the Ephesians might know what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now when I hear inheritance, I usually think of the inheritance that Christ has stored up for us in heaven. Right? Something that cannot perish, spoil, or fade as, as we read in 1 Peter. But Paul is clear in this case, the inheritance that he's talking about actually belongs to God. It is, if you note it in the text, it is his inheritance, God's inheritance, not ours. Which may sound a little bit strange at first, but think about it. Throughout the Bible, God talks about his people as being his inheritance. We came across this in Deuteronomy, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 4. We read, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are to this day. And in a similar way, God has now taken you out from a far deeper, darker dungeon, rescuing you from sin and death, so that you might be a people of his own inheritance. As indeed you really are today. As incredible as it may sound, God counts you and me as his inheritance, despite everything. Right? I mean, we are a messy bunch. Some scruffy, scraggly bunch of ne'er-do-wells. We're just stumbling and failing and falling far more than we should. Our spiritual growth is more jagged than the most volatile stock market chart you can imagine. And yet we're described here as the wealth of his glorious inheritance. That means you are not just some cheap plastic consolation prize skidding into heaven sort of by accident or as an afterthought. In God's eyes, you are the grand prize. Whatever you may think of yourself, God says, you are my inheritance. Not because you are rocking your New Year's resolutions. Not because you're doing all these grand things for God. But because he has called you, he has saved you, and he has adopted you. It is all grace, all the way. And boy, do we need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. When we fail, when we fall, when we feel attacked by Satan, when we feel trapped in our own doubts and fears and anxieties, when we feel consumed by guilt and shame, in Christ, God counts you as his treasured possession. You are that valuable to him. And so Paul prays that the Spirit would make that clear to the Ephesians, that they would know God's deep and abiding love and concern for them. They are his treasured inheritance. And then finally, Paul prays for the Ephesians to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. You know, spiritual power was a significant issue for the people of Ephesus. If you remember from the first sermon in the series, the city was dominated by the temple 
physically dominated by the temple of Artemis, this massive building, but also spiritually dominated by the darkness it represented, a a religious cult that exerted enormous influence over the people of the city. According to Luke 19, I mean Luke's account in Acts 19, right? Many of the first believers who were rescued from bondage to occult practices, magic arts, they came and they burned it all in a fire, right? Paul experienced this when the silversmith Demetrius stirred up a riot against them, worried about the impact the gospel was going to have on their idolatry. And against this background of spiritual darkness, Paul wants the Ephesians to know, he wants them to really and truly know, to be confident and assured that there is all surpassing power available to them through the Holy Spirit. And to do that, he piles up as many different ways of talking about power as you can imagine. The NASB captures this well. He says, I want you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. God's power is all-surpassing, immeasurable, exceedingly great. You know, I saw a reel earlier this week of, of a strongman competition, and it's one of these things where these strongmen, they, they take these ever-increasingly heavy kettlebells, and they launch them up in the air, up over their heads, over a 15-foot bar. It's astonishing. <laughs> There's just no way I could do this. That's what all-surpassing strength looks like in human form, and now multiply that by, like, infinity to get a sense for the power that is available to us in Christ, because God is omnipotent, right? All-powerful, unstoppable. Do you think that mere silver and stone idols in Ephesus really stood a chance against God? Of course not. And yet, how often do we live today as if the evil forces around us are almost invincible, whether they're spiritual or physical or political or whatever they may be, how often do we let fear overwhelm us and consume us? Right? Fear, it sells really well. It gets people to read your blog, your website, whatever it is. But fear fails to account for the all-surpassing power of God that is accessible for all believers Look, Paul knew that that the Ephesians would be stressed out of their minds. They'd be anxious. They would be overwhelmed living as a harassed minority in a spiritually dark city. And so he prays for the Holy Spirit to help them know that God's power is on their side. Strong, mighty, powerful. And we need those same reminders as well especially with so much fighting taking place in all around the world with, with tensions rising in the Middle East, another national election looming on the horizon with the, the chaos in our own lives, even here in our own church this morning. So much to bring about fear and uncertainty. So much fear that threatens to consume us. And God wants us to know deep down in our bones 
that our calling is secure, that his love for us, even in the middle of our brokenness, is certain. And his exceedingly great power is without comparison. You know, Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1 is such an encouraging reminder to me of God's deep concern for our well-being. As a follower of Christ, you have been blessed with every possible spiritual blessing. You are called, saved, adopted, sealed, and secure. You are God's inheritance. You have access to his strength. And as such, you can enter the unknown, the unknowable of these next 12 months in full confidence that God has you firmly and securely in his grip. And my prayer for you today is the same then as Paul's, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of your heart to know God ever more deeply and intimately this year, breathing in these truths, internalizing them, and resting in the hope that you and I have in Christ as a result. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that you would help us to know the hope to which we have been called. We pray that you would help us to know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. And we pray that we would all know and experience the immeasurable greatness of your unstoppable power available toward us who believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn our attention now to communion, and it's here that we see the great love of God for us in Christ. If ever you doubt, has God really made me his treasured possession? Look here, look again to the cross. What we need, as what, what we've just heard preached from Pastor Jonathan, what we need is for our eyes to be fixed on Christ. Not our circumstances, not our country, not on the chaos around us or in us or in our family. Christ, Christ, look to Christ, the founder and the finisher of your faith. Let's do that. Amen? This communion, make this communion celebration. Celebration of what Christ has done. Give yourself to prayers of thanksgiving and praise for him. As the communion elements are passed, let's praise Christ. And we'll take communion together in just a few minutes.